Dr. R.J. Rushduni uh, has made a deep study of capital punishment. He is going to approach it quite refreshingly, differently from the normal, usual, legal or moral approach. His approach will be theological, as we indicated in the bulletin in which we invited you to this meeting. I think if I were to sum up the uh, the qualifications of Dr. Rushduni for this appearance tonight to speak to us on this subject, I would simply say that he's dealing with this subject as a scholar uh, who is not looking through a tube with a tubular approach to the subject. He brings the general background of his general grasp of theology and of human uh, disciplines and human problems to his discussion of the subject. Just this before I present him. I have a clipping here from a local newspaper, The Register, quoting a man named Gary Phoenix. Gary Phoenix uh, was on death row until we decided to do away with death row in the state of California. He was on death row for sexual assaults on women in several cities uh, and other related crimes, uh, a real pervert, convicted of many crimes, but he has made this statement about capital punishment. Nobody in this world can go for capital punishment and be a Christian. Dr. R.J. Rushduni, is it true? Maybe we'll let you answer that one. Let's welcome Dr. Rush Dooney. A cartoon that has long been my favorite came out a few years ago. It showed a long-haired, toga-wearing man parading in a public street carrying a sign which read, We are doomed. The world will not end. I thought of that cartoon again this past week when I concluded the reading of a book published about ten years ago written by a distinguished American scholar, Leslie Fiedler. The title of it is Waiting for the End. His study is a commentary on modern man and modern scholars. And the point that comes out emphatically is that among the modern writers and thinkers, there is a suicidal urge for the end. A feeling that life is meaningless and hopeless, an eschatological hope that somehow something will come in and smash it all, end it all, bring judgment and punishment upon man, and wipe the slate clean. Fiedler, as a humanist, shares the feelings of these men. But his last two pages are a very mournful commentary. They are all wrong, he says. It will not end. It will go on and on and on in its meaningless way. This is the character of our time. Men longing for death and yet decrying capital punishment, writing at great length that what the world needs is some kind of humanistic judgment day that will obliterate man and society, and then saying we must not lay hands on a single criminal to execute him. It's paradoxical. It should give us cause for reflection on the motives that impel these men. 
I am reminded of the fact that once a good many years ago, I visited a man who lived in a very tall apartment building on one of the upper stories. He kept his drapes drawn all the time. I went out and looked from one of them, pulling the drapes back, and it was a magnificent view of the Bay Area. And I remarked about it and said it would be worth having that view all the time, day and night, for the drapes pulled back. And his answer was, it would then be too tempting to jump. Modern man both wants death and is afraid of it. Both wants judgment and runs from it. He commits suicide as men have never done before in history and yet pours millions upon millions into research to eliminate death. In fact, I learned Sunday from the L.A. Times that there is a protest movement against death. He fights against capital punishment even when he feels that he and the world need it. This is the outcome of humanism. Make no mistake about it, humanism is the great enemy. It has captured our churches, schools, states, all of society. Modern life is given over to the worship of man and the rule of man, to a belief that man's will, man's wishes, man's whims should be gratified. And we who believe in the worship of God and the rule of God are in the minority. Humanism believes in the rule of man. This can take varying forms as it has throughout history. It can be the rule of man by monarchy, dictatorship, or democracy, but it's man as Lord, man as the living word. We believe in Christ as King, Christ as King over all things, over church, state, school, home, science, business, every area of life. One of the things that anyone who counsels anyone nowadays about problems and counters is the expression of feeling. If people have a problem, ultimately, when they get down to the basic reason why they are asking the question, it's because, well, I feel this way. And they don't like it if you say, well, what have your feelings got to do with it? The issue is not a question of man's feeling, but of right or wrong in terms of God's word. One of our state senators asked me to help him answer the Senate chaplain. That chaplain had written a paper against capital punishment, which he was circulating as a clergyman and as the Christian point of view among our state senators. He held, of course, that Christ was against capital punishment. Let me cite one sentence from that statement of his, which expresses the totality of it, and I quote, 
Jesus asks that we make our value judgments on the basis of what we would want if we were in the guilty one's place. Unquote. Can you imagine a statement more fantastic than that? Jesus wants that we should asks that we should make our value judgments on the basis of what we would want, our feelings if we were in the guilty one's place. Our feelings, moreover, as guilty men. Is this the law and the prophets? Is this what the word of God amounts to, that we should take the feelings of the guilty and make them the standard of judgment? This is to say, then, that man's feelings and man's guilt are the basis of judgment rather than the righteousness of God. And this is moral anarchism. A year or so ago, a group of women who favored abortion invaded the committee chambers in a certain state in the East where hearings were being held on the subject of abortion. And they told the men assembled there, the state senators of that particular state, that they had no right to debate on the issue, no right to pass or to maintain any legislation which in any way infringed on the right of a woman to have abortion at will. And what was their reason? You men have never been pregnant. What right then do you have to govern or to legislate where pregnancy is concerned? The test is again experience. In terms of the logic that this chaplain in Sacramento used, and in terms of the logic of these women, there should be no legislation concerning murder except by murderers. After all, what do we who have never murdered know what it feels like to murder? What, have, what right have we then to judge such a one? This is humanism. Justification. By man and man's feelings. But we believe in justification by the grace of God through faith. We believe in sanctification by obedience to God by works of law. We believe that scripture is the guide, not man's feelings or experience. And therefore, as we deal with the meaning of life and death, as we try to get a perspective on capital punishment, we begin with the word of God. God's law is, Thou shalt not kill. Thou, you and me, every man, shalt not kill. I know there are some people who try to say, this should read murder. Thou shalt not murder. This is not true. This is not the reading of Scripture. The word in Scripture is emphatically clear. Thou shalt not kill. All killing by man's initiative and by man's will is banned in every area of life. But the Bible is neither pacifistic nor vegetarian. What does this mean then? God emphatically forbids man to kill in terms of his own will, his own feelings, his own law. It means that life and all things are created by God, owned by God, governed by God, and subject to use by man only in terms of God's law. One of the emphatic statements of Scripture is, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
We are guests in the household of God. No more than you have the right to enter my home and use anything therein or any part of it except by my permission. Do you have the right to do anything in this world apart from the word of God? We are told, in fact, by St. Paul, whether ye eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Over and over again, the scripture makes this point clear. When God gave the law, he prefaced it in Exodus 19.5 with a statement, The earth is mine. Therefore, God gives the laws for it. Leviticus 18.4 Ye shall do my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. Again in Deuteronomy 1.17, the statement is emphatically made. That in all courts of law where men act faithfully in terms of God's word, the judgment is the Lord's. What does this mean? It means that when capital punishment is enforced in terms of the word of God, it is not man killing. It is God's sentence being carried out, and man is merely the instrument. But the judgment is not that of man, though a man sits in the courtroom. The judgment is the Lord's. As a matter of fact, the law and the Psalms, and indeed our Lord, went so far as to speak of judges as Elohim, God. They are called gods because they act in God's place as judges among men. And as long as they act in terms of God's word, they carry an authority and a power that is not man's to kill and to make alive, to sentence to death or to release. But if they fail, if they are faithless to God's law, what is the sentence? Ye are called God, that he shall die like men. Judgment will be their destiny then. If judgment were left to men, to us, we would be very likely to spare many who are guilty out of pity, or to kill right and left out of anger and rage. But when the judgment is the law, when it is applied in terms of God's law word, life is not taken by man, but by God with man as his instrument. Over the scripture makes it clear that in every area of life, life is to be touched only in terms of God's law. God gave permission to man to kill animal life for food. He not only did so, but he specified the kinds of animals that were to be cleaned and gave specifications, roughly the beasts of prey in the animal kingdom and scavengers among aquatic creatures were to be avoided. Moreover, he gave principles of conservation that there should be no killing of both mother and young. 
Christ can be taken for food. By God's permission. And then it is not man that acts, but the Lord who has given the commandment, made the provision, and charted the course for man to follow. Again, when the death penalty is required and it is made mandatory for certain offenses, we are told emphatically that it is because God requires that all sin be atoned for or judged. In other words, the sentence for all sin is death. Either we accept the vicarious death of Jesus Christ or we ultimately face the judgment of God. The sin begins the process of death and at the judgment we are consigned to everlasting death. Moreover, in this life where we offend in certain areas, we are here and now required by the law of God to undergo capital punishment. This is seen as so serious in God's eyes that in Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 through 9, The law provides for unsolved murders. What is required, the law says. When a man is found murdered and no one knows how to solve the crime, there are no clues, nothing turns up, the crime remains unsolved. But God's judgment overhangs the community. In fact, if it is out in the fields, it has to be determined which town or village or city that body is nearest, because that community has to bear the guilt. Restitution must be made to the family of the victim, and atonement must be made to God. Every violation of God's law, every murder, every capital offense is very serious in the sight of God. And therefore, God's mercy must be sought. And if the murders go unavenged, then God's vengeance falls upon the community or the nation that treats such offenses so lightly. What this law very clearly means that in a land where murders abound, not only are many of them unsolved, but there is no death penalty, then God's death penalty is operative against that country. And today we must say the world is right, therefore for judgment. So seriously does God regard every taking of life apart from his law word that in Exodus 21 verses 21 to 23 we are given the law of accidental abortion. Now what Exodus 21, particularly 22 and 23, deal with is not a case of deliberate abortion. It is assumed that that is murder. But if a man, through some kind of accident, causes a woman to abort, and either the child or the mother die. The penalty is life or life. Capital punishment. If there's any damage to either mother or child, the judges must assess a penalty. 
is how seriously God protects life in his law. Man has no right to take life casually under any circumstances and never apart from the word of God. There's another law that indicates the function of capital punishment. You know, there are some defenders of the repeal of capital punishment who say it is no deterrent to criminals. I've never known a case of an executed man who committed any further crimes. It's been a remarkable deterrent in every case. But far more than that is intended by God. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21, we have a very important law. The law of the rebellious son. Now, all these laws in Scripture, apart from the Ten Commandments, which are the principles, the legal principles, are case laws. They establish a particular case as a minimal case. If it is true here, how much more so in other cases? Scripture itself gives us an example of how case law works. Case laws you have it in the courts today is a product, incidentally, of Scripture. And it comes to us in this country from the colonial, the Puritan era. Thus, thou shalt not muzzle the ox which treadeth out the corn. St. Paul tells us that this means that the laborer is worthy of his hire. If the ox is entitled to something for his work, how much more so man. And if man is entitled to it, St. Paul then goes on, how much more so those who are the servants of the Lord who faithfully serve them? Are they not worth, he says, double honor? Very interesting point some of you ministers should remember and remind your layman of. Now, in this case of the incorrigible son, an incorrigible delinquent, the whole point of it is, if an incorrigible delinquent is to be executed, how much more so an incorrigible adult? This, because it was in Scripture, was once a part of the law of most countries, including our country. In almost every state of the Union, not too many years ago, a habitual criminal after the third or fourth offense could be executed. Then it was changed to life imprisonment, and now it's abolished. Deuteronomy 21 21 tells us that the purpose of this law is, So shalt thou put away the evil from the midst of thee. What is the purpose, then, of capital punishment? It is to cleanse the land of evildoers, to put evil out from amongst us. It is not God's purpose that the incorrigible criminal remain alive. He is to be weeded out of society, eliminated, and repeatedly. Scripture emphasizes this fact. Theologically, therefore, we must say the purpose of God's law is not only to declare that life can only be taken in terms of his word, but it is to be taken to provide life for man, where food is concerned, and to further the life of man under God by eliminating the godless. Repeatedly, Scripture states that as a function of capital punishment. The land thus is to be cleansed because it is the creation of the holy God for a 
holy people. And therefore God wants the earth to prosper and abound under his people who have been called to exercise dominion over it and to subdue the earth, to develop it, to make it God's dominion, to develop science and the arts in every area to exercise mastery over the things of this world in terms of God's law word, to be prophets under God setting forth the implications of God's word for every area of life, to be priests under God, to develop the earth and to offer it unto God as a holy sacrifice, and to be kings unto God, exercising dominion under his name over every area of life and thought. commandments, thou shalt not kill, thus, is one of very great importance. A good many years ago, Adam Clark, in commenting on the sixth commandment, wrote as follows, God is the fountain and author of life. No creature can give life to another. An archangel cannot give life to an angel. An angel cannot give life to man. Man cannot give life even to the meanest of the brute creation. As God alone gives life, so he alone has a right to take it away. And who without the authority of God takes away life is properly a murderer. Unquote. All of life, thus, is to be lived under God. And every area of life must see the exercise of God's law as the cleansing agent. There's a great deal of talk today about pollution. The people who are against pollution should therefore favor capital punishment. Because in terms of God's law, nothing more pollutes the earth than to allow those who deserve to die to live. And repeatedly the scripture says, So shalt thou put away evil from the earth, that which pollutes, that which destroys life. This must be put away. Today our urban life, our rural life, our national and our international life is under grave pollution because the law word of God has been set aside. Capital punishment is not enforced. And indeed, those who deserve it are to all practical intent being subsidized. Early this summer, I sat in the office of one of our state senators, a very devout Christian, Bill Richardson. He said, I want to show you some pictures taken inside our newest state prison. There were swimming pools, a golf course, tennis court, television, the rooms looked like excellent motel rooms. And he said, this is the new standard in penology. 
And he said, these people get more entertainment and more recreation than you and I do in a year's time. They're being subsidized in an increasingly good life at our as scripture says, so shalt thou put away evil from amongst you. But positively, thou shalt not kill has as its counterpart. Thou shalt further and protect that which God would have you further and protect. At this point, Calvin made an interesting commentary in his analysis of the Sixth Commandment. He said, and I quote, because I think this is especially pertinent to our time. It will, however, more clearly appear hereafter that under the word kill is included by synecdoche, synecdoche, all violence, smiting, and aggression. Besides, another principle is also to be remembered, that in negative precepts, as they are called, the opposite affirmation is also to be understood, else it would not be by any means consistent that a person would satisfy God's law by merely abstaining from doing injury to others. Suppose, for example, that one of a cowardly disposition, and not daring even to assail a child, should not move a finger to injure his neighbors. Would he therefore have discharged the duties of humanity as regards the Sixth Commandment. Nay, natural common sense demands more than that we should abstain from wrongdoing. And not to say more on this point, it will plainly appear from the summary of the second table that God not only forbids us to be murderers, but also prescribes that everyone should study faithfully to defend the life of his neighbor and practically to declare that it is dear to him. For in that summary, no mere negative phrase is used. But the words expressly set forth that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It is unquestionable, then, that of those whom God therefore commands to be loved, he here commends the lives to our care. There are, consequently, two parts in the commandment. First, that we should not vex or oppress or be at enmity. And secondly, that we should not only live at peace with men without exciting quarrels, but also should aid as far as we can the miserable who are unjustly oppressed and should endeavor to resist the wicked lest they should injure, injure men as they live. Unquote. Scripture thus when it commands us that we should not kill requires us to conserve all life in terms of God's law, as well as to eliminate that life which God's law requires to be eliminated. It also requires us to be careful of the life of our neighbor. Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, for example, goes so far as to tell us that we are guilty if we do not have battlements on the roofs of our house. Now what that means is that in Palestine in those days, roofs had a flat top, and people in the summer, very often after dark, ate 
on the rooftop where it was cool and pleasant and often slept there. And a great deal of entertainment and recreation in the summer was on the rooftop. They were required to have a railing of sufficient strength and height to prevent any child or adult from stumbling and falling to their injury. And the scriptures state, that thou bring not blood upon thine head if any man fall from thus. This terminology appears very often. To be guilty of blood means to incur death, the capital penalty from God. And scripture makes this emphatic. An individual or a nation that brings blood upon its head by failing to obey God's law, which does not punish murder nor abortion, incurs blood. It brings upon its head the death penalty. We live in an age when all nations virtually have in one way or another blood upon their head. This puts us in a very critical position. We live in an age, we live in a generation that is sentenced to death and knows it. Remember, I began by calling attention to a book entitled Waiting for the End. Not a single person quoted in that book by Fiedler is even remotely a Christian. They are all modern writers, modern thinkers, a reprobate group. They all of them not only regard everything we hold dear in utter contempt, but regard God as dead and his word as irrelevant. And yet they have, in terms of the word of God, incurred blood upon their head. And what is it that they come up with after all their disregard for God, a crying out for judgment, waiting for the end, and the words waiting for the end, which Fiedler quotes, are from a very famous poem by a modern poet. The theme is that modern man is waiting for the end. We are waiting for the end, boys. We are waiting for the end. And he goes on to speak about waiting. Waiting for a judgment that delays. Waiting for an axe that has not yet fallen. They have incurred blood. Though they deny God, they know his judgment is upon them. And they are waiting for the end. In God's sight, they are on death row. And psychologically, they know it. It is therefore necessary for us in this day and age to preach the saving power of Christ to insist upon the kingship of Christ and the rule of his law, to strive to reestablish his law concerning life in every area, and to kill and to make alive in terms of the law word of God. This do
discussion that the Rashmi for this very fine discussion. Now the meeting is open for questions. We have time for some questions. Who will ask the first question? My question has to do with the uh, legitimacy or illegitimacy, uh, the possible legitimacy or illegitimacy, I should say, of the powers that be in terms of whether they function according to that law of God or not. Mm -hmm. Specifically, uh, I have in mind communism, for example, mm -hmm. where the people do not elect those who have imposed tyranny upon them and then carry out their law, the humanistic law, upon the people. Yes. Uh, could you comment uh, specifically in reference to the power that be, in reference to legitimacy or illegitimacy? Yes. First of all, an historical fact. The powers that be, when St. Paul wrote those words, meant Nero. As de degenerate and debauched a man as has ever ruled. Vicious, murderous, a pervert, and yet St. Paul at the same time did appeal to Caesar. As a result, we have to say that to a very great extent, even when the powers that be are very corrupt, we still have to recognize a duty of obedience within limits. Moreover, St. Paul says, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Every civil government is a law order. Now, very often it's a very ungodly law order. But it finds that up to a certain point it cannot go beyond a certain minimum of respect for what we would regard as law and order without destroying itself. Thus, even communism protects Despite its terrorism, despite the fact that almost any time you may have a knock on the door and be taken without any good reason to a slave labor camp, up to that point, it protects you from, uh, say, a noisy drunk down the hall. They'll come and pick up that drunk and throw him in prison immediately. It'll protect you from a thief in the apartment house. It will protect you from a rapist or a murderer because it realizes if it destroys all law and order, it will have anarchy. It will not have that necessary uh, element of order to survive. Now, having said that in defense of what St. Paul has said, let's go into another aspect of this theologically. It is true. Many states are very lawless, communism par excellence. And our country, in some respects, is becoming, some claim, more dangerous to walk in after dark than even Moscow, which is not particularly safe. So we ourselves are approaching a fearful situation. Now, St. Augustine, in the City of God, in terms of a very lengthy analysis of the whole doctrine of the state from Scripture, which I don't have time to go into, said that the state has a duty to be under God, to be God's agent and minister, as St. Paul has declared. When it ceases to be God's minister, it becomes simply the most powerful, organized thief or band of thieves in the land. What we have to say today is that our government, which still has aspects of godly law and order to it, 
is also in process of becoming the biggest mafia band, you might say, in the country. An organized band out to rob the people, and it is robbing us. And because of the same godlessness, capital and labor alike are becoming lesser bands of thieves. Now, the answer to that is, of course, again, theologically, that the answer does not rest in rebellion against the government, because it's something that comes down to the heart and the life of every man. In any sort of day, we are told, the greatest shoplifting is not by people coming into the store shoplifters, but by employees and employers. In other words, the management as well as the workers steal a store blind and then write it off in insurance or charge it to the customers in higher prices. So, when you have a government that is lawless, godless, and capital and labor the same way it is because the people themselves are. When you study the life of Russia in the last century, and they had a much better life under the sun, what you find is that for all of the last century, it was moving more and more into a godlessness. And today, it's reaping the harvest of it. Certainly, the Bolsheviks represented a criminal conspiracy, but they could succeed precisely because the seeds of the same evil were in the hearts of the people. Very soon after the revolution, when the Bolshevik reign of terror began, an English journalist who was there and talked to some of the people, and they were bewailing with considerable grief and horror what was happening to them, still some of them said it was our own fault. The Bolshevik leaders told us if we would attack the lords and the landlords and kill them and seize everything they had, the land and the wealth would be ours. So we began by killing, and now they're killing us. And that's exactly the situation. People get the kind of government they deserve. They're getting it for their own grief in the Soviet Union, and it's not going to change until the underground church, which is growing, begins to create a different kind of people. And the Kremlin will know it. And this country isn't going to change until you and I create a different kind of people, and they will know it. And today, the thing they fear most in the United States is the Christian school movement, because they know the effect of it. You know the Supreme Court has said that the chief business of government is education? That's a new statement, isn't it? And in the decision overturning the uh, property tax basis of our local schools, the California State Supreme Court said the chief business of the state is education. And the Texas State Supreme Court echoed the same statement. I have them all on my desk out of the congressional record. They were all entered in, those decisions, the three of them. The Texas Supreme Court said the chief business of the state is education. I always thought it was justice to protect us and our life and uh, persons and property. But now they say it's education because they're afraid their power in this area is being destroyed by the Christian school. The battle of the 70s will be in education. Between the states and the federal governments and the cities and counties as against the Christian schools. And the future of America is going to be determined by the outcome of that battle. In terms, again, of the practical Christianity, you just hold some for a Christian community 
to uh, publicly support capital punishment and thereby whitewash the mafia state who uses capital punishment to murder innocent people. One of the things that frightens me about the state having the power of capital punishment is that dead men tell no tales. If they can, uh, on some technicality or some reason, execute a man, he is not a nuisance to the mafia state. Well, the answer to that is I doubt that many innocent men are executed or have been executed in our state prisons. I think it's possible in our long history if you have been. But first of all, of the people who land in our criminal courts, depending... True. But that was by the providence and purpose of God for his purposes. Of the hundred people who go to court, depending on the state, from 75 to 90 percent plead guilty, so that in the overwhelming majority of cases, the persons who are taken to court recognize their guilt and plead guilty. Of the remaining percentage, most of them are convicted, or were until the last few years, now not so readily, have endless right of appeal, and their appeal is maintained at the taxpayer's expense endlessly. Now, it's even going in the other direction. In the state of California, in the most recent year of full records, there were 264,000 major crimes against persons and property. Um, no, excuse me, there were 664,000 major crimes against persons and property. There were only about 224,000 arrests, so in most cases they didn't catch anyone. The district attorney said we will only take the open and shut cases for court because the juries and the judges are so lax today, so they took about 15 or 20 less than 50,000 out of the 224,000. Out of that 50,000, the judges and juries convicted less than 5,000. Less than 5,000 served any time. And yet, those 50,000 were so clearly guilty that the DAs had thought this was the year 1970, it's impossible that they cannot convict. Now, the likelihood of anyone, when this is the situation in state after state, being sent to prison when he was innocent is very far-fetched and remote. Those that have been sent have such long records already and are so extensively criminal that in terms of God's law they should have been ex executed long ago. I think we should be more concerned about the victims of crime, because today, in terms of the fact that in 1970 there were almost 700,000 major crimes in a population of 20 million, it means your chance of being involved in a major crime against you in the year 1973 is very great. You better see yourself as a potential victim. You remain at the microphone here and uh, lead us in a closing, closing benediction in just a moment if we will stand. First of all, let me just thank uh, Dr. Rushdooney for this appearance. Shall we all join in, a, in an expression of thanks? there is no other place in the country where you would have heard this uh, very enlightening presentation on capital punishment from a theological and uh, biblical standpoint. Now shall we stand and uh, Dr. Rushdooney will lead us in a benediction.
Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who called us forth and made us a great nation unto thee. We thank thee that thy saving word can again make us great in Jesus Christ. And we pray, our Father, that thou wouldst revive us as of old, and make us a people unto thee, that show forth thy saving grace unto the ends of the earth. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you.